Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. In season 11 of the podcast, we are exploring resilience, failure and forgiveness, leadership, belonging, and a variety of other topics that when done properly will help us perform our best. Our guest today is author, entrepreneur, and four-time USA national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast, Lisa Carmen Wang. In our conversation, we explore the drive and discipline that helped Lisa become a world-class gymnast and how her experiences as an athlete helped her succeed once her competitive athletic career ended. We also talk about the sacrifices she's had to make to perform at her highest levels, her approach to risk-taking, and how she is working to empower others to succeed in business and life. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Lisa, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you. Excited to be here. Let's just start with your background. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? And maybe how did you get interested in being a gymnast? I was born in Madison, Wisconsin. I spent nine years there, then another nine years in the suburbs of Chicago. So I grew up in very white neighborhoods as one of the few Asian girls and always felt like I didn't belong, always felt like I was weird or ugly. And I ended up finding gymnastics when I was nine years old and we had just moved to Chicago. And it was a really funny story because I was at that time a very avid Beanie Baby collector because the value of Beanie Babies was skyrocketing. And I had something in school called the Fine Arts Day. And Fine Arts Day was when all the kids got to choose classes in fine arts, right? No science, no math, like dancing, singing. And I was torn between two classes. One was the Beanie Baby making class and the other was the rhythmic gymnastics class. And I couldn't decide, but I heard all these other kids talking about how they wanted to take this class, both of those classes. And I realized that my last name started with a W, which was at the end of the alphabet, which meant that I would choose last and I would definitely not get my top choices. So I went to the teacher and I said, I think it's not fair that the second half of the alphabet always has to go after the first half of the alphabet. And so I think that was really my first activism moment when I was really advocating for the the underdog or at least the second half of the alphabet. And so we ended up putting it up for a vote And the teacher said, we can vote and see what happens. And I stood up on one of those little desks and I said, I think it's just not fair that we have to go after the first half of the alphabet. Lo and behold, the second half of the alphabet won by one M. And that meant I got to go first. And so I ended up doing eeny, meeny, miny, moe. I got gymnastics, fell in love with it. The rest is history. And that defined the next 10 years of my life as a very serious competitive gymnast. Can you talk about the drive required to be a competitive gymnast? Well, it is a very physically rigorous sport that focuses on absolute perfection, literally a sport that focuses on the perfect 10. And it's a very interesting judging system in which you start at a 10 and every move you make is a deduction. So think about that as a mentality, as a perfectionist, as a high achiever and the amount of pressure that puts on you. So I was already very perfectionist and high achieving by nature. And the grueling schedule was that I would go to school from 
I would have my first classes all in a row. I would skip lunch and then immediately my mom would pick me up. I'd eat lunch in the car, do homework and be in the gym five, six hours and then just come do homework when it's 9, 10 p.m. and just go do it all over again, wake up the next morning at 6 a.m. And so I really didn't have any room for any distraction outside of two big goals. One was to go to the Olympics and the other one was to just do well in school. And so I think that that level of focus, like very narrow and clear focus, really helped me succeed at an early age alongside with the drive to actually be the best. And was that drive your drive or was it from external sources like your parents or community or family members? How, how did that drive originate? I think it actually is a big part of my nature. I was the one who wanted to go into gymnastics. I was the one who convinced my parents that this was the gymnastics summer camp that I needed to be a part of. And the moment that the coaches started telling me that, oh, she's pretty good at this, I just, I think I have a natural instinct to just dream bigger. Like someone gives me a little bite, a little taste, and I'm like, okay, well, what if we turn this into a massive thing? And of course, there were there was pressure and expectations. And over time, a lot of people made sacrifices for me, including my parents, the coaches, my teammates, the judges. But that fundamental and foundational drive to succeed came from myself. And that's just, you were born with that? When, when did you notice you had that? I've analyzed this a lot about what is it that drove me. I think that there is definitely some sort of subconscious chip or feeling of inadequacy that a lot of people who strive to achieve a lot, it's like they feel like they need to prove something. And I think part of why like I brought up where I came from is like I from a young age felt like I didn't have a voice, that people didn't listen to me, that I had nothing worthy to say. And so the best way for me to show up and be seen was by being the best at whatever I put my mind to. Yeah, you, you mentioned this lack of belonging and growing up in Madison, Wisconsin, and it's a great city. I've been there many times, but it's not extraordinarily diverse. And around the university, of course it is, but probably where you were growing up, you know, you might have been one of the non, the only non-white people in that neighborhood. And so, yeah, I can see how that might be a source for this drive and I'll show them type attitude, right? Yeah. And I think that there, at some point I got this feeling that I was meant for something more. I definitely felt that in my professional career when I started and just this drive of, I think I can make impact. If they can do it, why can't I do it? There's just that sort of feeling like I, I've achieved before. Why can't I do it this time? You mentioned that you had this kind of bifurcated set of desires to do well in school and then to achieve the Olympics. And it seems like you've done both, right? You achieved in athletics and you achieved in school. And those both require an incredible investment in time. So how did you manage that to succeed with both? Honestly, when I look back at it, I think it was Easy simply because I never experienced any other distractions. Therefore, I wasn't giving anything up. So it's not like I had a ton of friends and was very popular and I had to give that up in order to 
do well in gymnastics or school. There was no dating. Boys never crossed my mind. Going to parties never crossed my mind. It's like, what else would I be doing besides going to the library and reading? (laughs) So I think it's much harder now as an adult when you're like, well, there's so many things I could be doing and fun parties and events and I could be taking this hobby and traveling. So it's the opportunity cost once you've grown up, I think, feels higher. Can you talk a little bit about dealing with pressure? Because as a gymnast and, you know, I had a professional boxer on the show one time and we we talked about his team and the trainer and, you know, going to camp and you're surrounded by all these people. But when you walk in the ring or when you walk on that mat, you're all alone. So can you talk about the intense pressure of being a gymnast and performing at that high level? What is that like? It is definitely very intense when you have all eyes on you and you are the one performer that can physically move a room through your performance. You can transmit energy through your emotion and the music and how your body moves through space. And so it is a very powerful place to occupy. And especially when you're 13, 16, 18, it's a lot of pressure to have on your shoulders. And once you add in the additional pressure representing the country on the national team, you know, knowing the amount of sacrifices everyone has made for you. So I think that it's definitely prepared me as a entrepreneur, as an investor, and anything that I achieve in my life which is ultimately that the number one lesson that I've learned as a gymnast that has helped me today is the ability to fall and get back up again. Because it doesn't matter how many times you fall or how many thousands of people you are performing in front of, somehow you need to find a way to overcome the shame, the humiliation, the pain, and put a smile on your face, get back up again, and keep going. And that ability to trust myself that every time I fall, I will get back up is what serves me when I take certain risks or take leaps into different industries. When you were performing as a, as a gymnast, did you ever get physically sick or anxious or, you know, just have something that seemed too intense for you? Yeah, definitely. I, I think the thing that, happens when the, when you do feel that is they're like, it doesn't matter. You still have to go up. <laughs> so it's, I mean, unless you are physically vomiting one second before they call your name onto the mat, you just have to go out there and do it. And did it, did it go away once you started, once the music started playing? I think the, yeah, it's like you, you have to do what you have to do. The adrenaline kicks in and there's just literally no other option besides forfeiting and losing your ability to perform and obviously a massive part of your score. So it's, yeah, you just find something inside of you that says like, if I want to do this, I just have to figure out a way to handle it. And have you felt that way ever in your business dealings, like this anxiety, you know, similar to performing or as, as an athlete? Yeah. Every time I launch something new, whether that's a new program, what sometimes it's even hard to post a new program on social media 
right? You know, you're like, okay, I'm ready to launch this thing and I'm ready to announce this new initiative that I'm doing. And you're like, what if, what if I can't actually do it? What if it's too ambitious? What if people think it's stupid? And so those, those voices are still there. And so I think part of the training that I put myself through, I launched so many different things. For example, I have dropped five podcasts, maybe six over the course of the last, I don't know, a few years. And I joke that I drop podcasts the way musical artists drop albums. Like as I evolve, I'm like, oh, this topic would be great. This topic would be great, which is obviously the antithesis of what they say about consistency and having the same brand. So at this point, I have my Bad Bitch Empire brand, right? And I'm like, I'm going all in. And within it, I have enough creative freedom to talk about many different topics. But yeah, I think it that same jittery feeling of as an entrepreneur, when you launch, it's it's scary. And do you feel because of your past, because as an athlete and a gymnast, you had to be perfect? Do you feel as an entrepreneur, you have to be perfect as well? So I recently launched a venture fund to invest in female-led tech companies. And when I was releasing the statement that like on social media that I was opening up this fund, I sat there for like two hours and I actually started crying because I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm not an investor. I'm not a VC. Like I don't have the same credential to someone who's gone from analyst, associate, VP, you know, whatever, partner. And I was like, I'm just doing this on my own. And it is so scary. And what if people call me out? What if they're like, oh, she's not, you know, a seasoned VC, like the typical Silicon Valley bros. And yeah, I ended up having to call a friend and and just they had to, they had to talk me through and just be like, look at all of, that you have accomplished. You can do this, too. There are so many people less qualified than you who are just launching funds. And so, yeah, it still happens. How about dealing with pressure? Do you have any advice for people who feel intense pressure and, and how to deal with it more effectively? I think it's really important to learn how to separate your sense of self-worth from the outcome. That's the fundamental thing. That's the reason why we have pressure. We place pressure on, oh, I, if I have this outcome, I make this amount of money, then I will be good enough, successful enough. People will accept me. People will be proud of me. Whatever your internal story is, identify what that story is and realize that you are actually worthy and valuable regardless of what you achieve. I think that is the work that we have to do in our society that is so focused on number of followers, amount of money in your bank account, titles on LinkedIn, like whatever all those external metrics are where we're always comparing ourselves to each other, that it's it's really the internal work. And then once you have figured out that core issue, then the pressure, then you can see the pressure for what it is, which is just you still subconsciously tying your worth to an outcome. That's that's great advice, or that's an important distinction to make. In 2008, the Olympics were in Beijing, and that was the those were the games that you were competing to to make the team. You missed the team. You missed being an Olympian by a quarter of a point. Is that right? Yeah, zero point two five tenths of a point. Okay. Yeah. What what happened at that point? You know, did you? How how were you feeling after that? 
Yeah. So I had trained for 10 years to go to this Olympics. And then when I didn't make it, I honestly felt like I my entire identity shattered because I had banked my identity on being a gymnast. And I realized that I think that was a really pivotal moment for me because I had to redefine and figure out what my identity was at that moment. And so I ended up well, that same week I got the acceptance letter to Yale University that said, you know, you're accepted to your dream school. But I think the biggest thing for me was realizing that I didn't want to end that chapter of my life losing or not making something. And so I ended up buying a one-way ticket to the Russian Olympic Training Center in Novogorsk, Russia, and I committed to becoming the best possible gymnast I could be for the next Nine months, I had deferred Yale at that point and told them I wasn't coming. And I finished my last competition, not at the Olympics, but at the USA National Championships, where I won every single gold medal, athlete of the year. And then I was like, peace, bitches, I'm out. Like, this is how a winner leaves on top. Congratulations. That's amazing. That's a, that's a, that's a great redemption story. I, I'm curious, when you, when you realized that you didn't make the Olympic team back in 2008 if you if you forgave yourself or because I think forgiveness is really really an important ability to forgive others and to forgive ourselves and I think a lot of us struggle to forgive ourselves when we fail and I wonder if you went through that process or if the process was going to Russia and continuing with your career I I think that I have continued for a long time after gymnastics to feel like I had to prove to myself that I was good enough. Like it was, it really was such a traumatic moment because it was a decade long dream. And to suddenly have that taken away from you when you are so close is, yeah, it's very hard when you're 18 years old and a very formative period of your life. And so I think there has been a part of me that's always been trying to find like that same level of focused passion that I had for the athletic part of my life. And I wanted to find it in work, in, yeah, in, in my purpose. And so even, even today, like I don't have a very fine line between who I am at work, who I am at life. You know, there's bad bitch Lisa. And then like sometimes <laughs> she's still she's still a bad bitch when she comes home. And I think a lot of people don't really understand sometimes the entrepreneurial obsession. Like I am my work. I am so much of my identity is tied up in in the brand. And and I've worked a lot on those things, but I I definitely think that as I've grown up, this idea of self-love self-forgiveness for mistakes that I have made has been very helpful. And, you know, that's beyond gymnastics. We make so many mistakes in business, in personal relationships. And yeah, it's just, I think it's an overall understanding that you're not perfect and that you make mistakes and you learn from them. And I think the bigger lens that I've been looking at things from is everything is happening for me. And no matter how difficult it is, I know that there is a silver lining that comes on the other side. Like I had a, a very tough personal incident happen to me at the end of last year. And 
it was very, very painful. And I just, even when it happened, I was like, I know, I know something good is coming come out of this. I don't know how long this is going to take and I'm going to wait for the pain to go away. But yeah, it took, it took months, but I remember the day that it clicked and I was, I said to myself, wow, the universe really just needed to like kick me all the way down <laughs> and, and teach me how strong I really was. You make sacrifices as an athlete. You make sacrifices as an entrepreneur. Are they similar? What are the differences? Could you talk about comparing and contrasting those two? So when I think about the sacrifices I made as an athlete, it was, I mean, a big part of it is, is the opportunity cost of time, right? What are you spending your time on? And if you're spending all of your time at the gym, then you don't have time to hang out with friends or develop relationships outside of it. And I think that it's still very similar when I think about it from that perspective. I definitely think that I have built a company in which I can surround myself with like-minded people. It's a, it's a bold brand that really brings together other bold people who are up overturning the status quo and, and not apologetic about what their missions are. But I think, I think that there's definitely like a trade-off for sure as a woman when it comes to personal relationships, because I, I think society is still in this unsure place of how it's ready to handle or deal with powerful women who want their own independent lives. And, and I think that we're still grappling with figuring that out. And so. Why do you say that? Why do you think that society is not ready? I think there's a crisis of healthy masculinity. Dating as a single woman in my 30s in New York that is going to prioritize my career, prioritize my dreams above anything else, which men have always been given the freedom to do. You know, it's like it's, it's much easier to find a wife who is ready to support her husband 100%, right? She's, she's ready to give up her career, be the mom, you know, take it easy. And that is the traditional masculine feminine role where the woman creates space for the man to go out there, have his adventure, pursue his dreams and careers. It is very, it is different when you have a very confident, very powerful, very independent woman and a man, it takes a very secure and very confident man to be able to create that space for her to thrive and grow without it being a threat to his ego and masculinity. And it, it's a balance too, because a lot of like alpha women in business and in like out there, I am naturally very feminine. Like I, when I'm in a relationship, I'm like, you be the man. Like I, I can't open the door by myself. Like I can't, I don't know how to decide which restaurant to go to, but I can make a decision on like the business strategy. And so I, 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 and I think that there's a, the ability to go from one extreme to another, like hard hitting bad bitch out there. And then like, okay, I'm going to come home and I just really want a man who is strong enough to then like be confident to handle that woman out, out there and not be threatened and then also to come home and be like, okay, I'm going to be the man and I'm going to take this. I'm going to take the lead here. So you, you talked, you alluded to Bad Bitch Empire, which is your new organization. And is that the name of your book that's coming out in September 26th? 
The book is called The Bad Bitch Business Bible, and it is the 10 commandments to break free of good girl brainwashing and take charge of your body, boundaries, and bank account. And, you know, every empire needs a Bible. So the, the book is the book is the Bible. The organization is the empire. So how are how are the book and the organization enabling others to be successful? So, as I said, the the Bad Bitch Business Bible is about helping women break free of good girl brainwashing. And good girl brainwashing is all the societal and media messages that train women to be to play small, to be subordinate, to be silent, to be people pleasers and perfectionists and afraid of taking risks, afraid to dream big, afraid to be their most authentic and powerful selves. And I think that this is this is also applicable to men as well. I just use the the term good girl brainwashing as a as a literary device to understand the opposite, which is like you're the bad bitch. And everyone has a bad bitch inside of them. And it's the the side of you that if you allowed your fears to fall away, if you actually bet on yourself, if you assumed success, if you like really believed and trusted that whatever you set your mind to, it's possible regardless of the naysayers or the haters. And at the core of this book is about self-respect, self-love, self-trust, to be able to speak and be your authentic, speak your authentic truth, be your authentic self, and to value yourself accordingly, even when society tries to devalue you for being different, especially. But at the end, the last chapters, so it's divided into three sections, body, boundaries, and bank account. In the bank account section, I really teach women how to learn about building wealth, investing in themselves, investing their assets in different investment asset classes, but particularly I focus on startups. So angel investing and teaching women the idea of what it means to actually invest in startups and how now anybody can really become a startup investor and invest in the types of female leaders, the technology, the organizations that and, and the causes that actually will create the type of diverse and collaborative future that we want to see. And so because right now over the $112 trillion assets under management of those women and people of color control only 1%. So that's $112 trillion. 1% of that is in the hands of women and people of color. So it's no wonder that all the money is funneled towards the majority are male leaders, male founders right now. Less than 0.2% of all funding goes to women of color who are founders. And so in order to shift the power and actually fund things like women's healthcare, right, women's economic empowerment, education equality, there needs to be different types of people, more women who are actually managing money. And so the last part, the last chapter is really talking about how women can start thinking about their money as a tool for both impact and growth, where they can start investing it. And then that was when I launched the Bad Bitch Empire. So the Bad Bitch Empire is a early stage venture fund and an investing community where women can come in and learn how to invest, invest together and celebrate together. And we make investing fun and we invest in female-led businesses that are creating the impact that we want to see in the world. And men can be bad bitches too. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we appreciate that. I want to ask you, Lisa, what would you say is your purpose in life? For the last decade, 
my focus has been purely on empowering women, but I think just as important is bringing men into the conversation because it can't just be a lopsided, you know, women speaking to women in a corner. That's what I've always thought is an issue with it because, yeah, men are 50% of the population. And I think that we, it, it is not on women to empower themselves. Like that, that's not, then it's like we're shouldering the entire burden. I, I mean, I think there are people who are meant to lead and there are people who are not meant to lead. And I think that the goal is to bring what I think the best that I can do is to create a vision for the world that I, I see as can be most beneficial, that can help the most amount of people and create light and to create awareness. And that's, I, I think the, the beginning of any sort of change is simply awareness. And I always say that the most valuable thing I can give anyone is a shift in perspective because you can't force people to do anything, but if you can shed light and you can provide a shift in perspective that will motivate them to think differently, to be a better person, to treat others more kindly, to help create a better world, then that's, that's what you can do. Do you feel like women are more risk averse than men? I actually just wrote an article about this. So about how Men are celebrated for taking risk. They're celebrated for like audacious behavior. And women, on the other hand, are praised for conforming to expectations, being good girls, you know, being polite and nice. And so I think it just becomes culturally indoctrinated at such an early age that it's like, boys, just go out there, be a maverick, explore, go after it. And then it's like, girls, be careful, you know, don't, don't. Don't do this. Don't do that. And so I don't think it's a natural thing that women are taking less risk. I think it is a it is the good girl brainwashing that has made us afraid of ourselves and afraid of the big bad world out there and afraid of what people will say about us. And I think to release that is simply doing what we've talked about earlier. Just launch. Just hit publish. Just try it. Like fall flat on your face. Learn to get rejected over and over again. I mean, even even from a, again, like, let's go back to the relationship between men and women. Like, men are the ones who are socialized to have to go up to women and get rejected over and over again. Even that sort of rejection is practice. Women are like, just stand there and look pretty. We talked about this on the way to school today with my seven-year-old. I talked about rejection and she's afraid to come up to a friend and say, do you want to play? Because they might say no. And I said, the, the person who says no is losing out. Lisa, you're so accomplished and so young, which is amazing. When you look out decades from now, what do you want your legacy to be? I want my legacy to be that of someone who dared to speak up, to challenge the status quo, to be a pioneer in changing the way that we think. Lisa, thank you for your time today, and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses, and thanks to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. We will return next week when I interview Dr. Christopher Tucker. 
Dr. Tucker is an author, entrepreneur, and the chairman of the American Geographical Society. In our conversation, we discuss the population explosion that has occurred over the last century, why he believes Earth's carrying capacity is 3 billion people, how we can reduce our population by empowering women around the world, and what population reduction means to the future economically. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.